Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Watchdogs Bark. My name is Drew. I am your host, and I consider myself a watchdog. This is a special edition of the Watchdogs Bark. It's a tribute to our men and women in uniform, and all gave some, but some gave all. And for those who gave all, this is a tribute to you on Memorial Day. Also, a special tribute to my father. No, my father did not serve in the military. He was not able to because of how bad his vision was. But he served in other ways, and he's, there's some amazing stories from his career I want to share with you and let you know what an amazing man he really was. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about one of my all-time favorite performers, and that is the Miss Tina Turner and her incredible career that spanned so many decades and connected so many generations with her music and talent and acting. So this is going to be basically a non-political podcast. Most of my podcasts aren't necessarily political. I do point out some things that I do not like about one party or the other. But for the most part, I want you to understand I try to look at every issue from both sides. And I am sending out invitations to a lot of my friends that do not share my ideology in hopes they'll listen to my podcast about Memorial Day and, and my father. I know some of them really loved my father. And so I want them to hear what I have to say about him. And maybe they haven't heard some of these stories. But my hopes also is that they might find it intriguing enough to go listen to a couple of other podcast episodes to see if maybe they like or don't like what I say. I am open completely to people that disagree with me. I leave my email address on every podcast uh, at the beginning, middle, or end, or sometimes a couple, two or three times I do. I want people to write me. I want to create a, uh, an open forum for people to talk about ideas and debate civilly our differences. I think that's something that's definitely missing in our world right now. We are so divided, and I'm trying to do what I can, not only to warn you of the things that I believe are going on that everyone should be aware of, but also to try and open up a conversation, try to get us all to talk to each other again. We used to do that. I used to have friends <laughs> that uh, I disagreed with, but now uh, I have a lot of people that are not my friends anymore of their choosing, not of mine. And that makes me very sad. But I want this to be a very uplifting and inspirational podcast. So stick around and thank you again for listening. And if you haven't listened to all my podcasts, I encourage you to go back and listen from the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. At least that's what I hear anyway. <laughs> All right, here we go. All right. Originally, Memorial Day was called Decoration Day, and it was created about a month after the Civil War ended in 1865. It happened in places like Charleston, South Carolina, and a lot of former slaves were participants in these celebrations, they wanted to give thanks to the soldiers who were willing to give their lives to get them freed from slavery. So that's where this day really began. And then the celebration 
of this day has expanded throughout the country. But in 1966, the federal government declared Waterloo, New York, the official birthplace of Memorial Day. And the reason why is Waterloo celebrated the day uh, because they had an annual community-wide event and businesses closed and they decorated graves of soldiers with flowers and flags. And this became a national tradition. So when it was created as Decoration Day on May 5th, 1868, General John A. Logan, a leader of an organization of Northern Civil War veterans, called that a national holiday. And basically, he chose that day because that was not a day that honored any of our battles. So they chose that day so we wouldn't think of battle while we're doing that. And then Decoration Day became Memorial Day officially in 1971, was made a national holiday, and was moved to the last Monday of the month of May. As Decoration Day, it really only honored those who died in the Civil War. But after uh, the World War I and World War II, the Vietnam, Korea, Korean War, Iraq, and Afghanistan, all these wars have been added to Memorial Day. All of the soldiers that have served in all of these theaters of combat are now honored, especially those who died in battle. When I read to you the staggering number of soldiers who have died for our country, I will point out at the very beginning, a lot of the deaths were from disease. They weren't from actual war. Uh, or the fighting in the war. For instance, in the War of 1812, uh, some 15,000 Americans died, but only 22 or 2,260 deaths were due to fighting. The rest were from disease. Disease was a major problem in battles in the beginning. And you'll hear as I rattle off these numbers, and like I said, they are staggering numbers, all told. Since the Revolutionary War, 1,185,596 soldiers have died fighting for our freedoms in this country. 646,596 troops have died in battle, and more than 539,000 have died from other non-combat-related causes. A sad statistic that's happening today is over 6,000 veterans are committing suicide. And uh, that's roughly six a day uh, that are happening. And it's, it just it can't continue. These men and women that gave so much for the defense of our freedoms in our country deserve better. In the Mexican-American War, there were about 78,000 U.S. troops against about 82,000 Mexican troops and 1,733 U.S. troops were killed in that war. And here's a humbling statistic about that war. That is a death rate of about 2.2%. So if you fought in that war, you had a 2.2% chance of dying. And that's extremely high compared to other wars. Now, in the Civil War, this has the highest number of deaths in any conflict because it was Americans fighting Americans. 
There were about 2.2 million Union combatants, and uh, then a little over 1.2 or 1.3 million Confederate combatants. And all told, on both sides, 650,000 men lost their lives. And that's just staggering to me. When people say that we're a, a still a racist country, I just think of the Civil War and think of all of the men and some women that died so we could abolish slavery in this country. And so when people still say that this country is still racist, and I have a hard time believing it because I've seen in my research all the changes and growth that our country has made. And when you make a statement like that, it basically says that we haven't grown as a country. We haven't learned. We haven't improved. And I think that's not fair to the men and women, especially in the Civil War, who lost their lives to free the slaves. Then in the Spanish-American War, about 300,000 uh, 300, soldiers fought, and I, I think only 385 died actually in combat. We don't have an accurate number of all the other ones that uh, died of disease or of other non-combat related injuries. But that was a lot better odds than the Mexican-American War. If you entered this war, you only had a 0.12% chance of dying. Now, in World War I, you actually had the greatest chance of dying. About 2.5% of those that went to fight never made it home. A total of 116,516 men never made it home. 53,402 fell to the enemy, and the other 63,114 were from other causes. As a matter of fact, I watched one interview where uh, a soldier was interviewed, obviously a while ago, because it was World War I, but he said you were almost as likely to perish due to trench foot or Spanish flu, as you were from a German bullet. So disease was still a problem, and especially the Spanish flu killed a lot of soldiers during World War I. Oh, and by the way, there were 4.73 million soldiers that went to fight in World War I. So like I said, if you went off to that war, you had a 2.5% chance of dying, either from combat or disease while you were at war. And World War II wasn't much better. You had a 1.8% chance of dying in World War II. Over 16 million Americans served in combat uh, during World War II. And moving on to the Korean War, around 2% of the 1.79 million who served in Korea were killed in combat. Uh, it was about 54,246 died as a result of the war. 36,574 of those died of actual combat. The number of soldiers that fought in Vietnam went up to 3.4 million, and the number of troops killed in the war grew by only 62%. And that was over the span of the 14 years that we were in Vietnam. And 
This is compared to three years of fighting in the Korean War. But in Vietnam, more than 58,000, actually it's 58 to 20, I think, American troops died during the Vietnam War. So a death rate of about 1.7% on this one, too. Now, the death rates go way down in future conflicts because we have much better medicine and technology. So just to give you an idea, the Gulf War, which only lasted you know, a very short time, it was the shock and awe that happened from 1990 to 1991, 694,550 troops were in service during that time and only 383 were killed. So that's a much bigger uh, decrease in the amount of soldiers dying in the war. Uh, it's actually less than 1%. It's 0.1%. All right. And the reason why is because we have much better weapons and much better medicine and medical techniques that can happen in the field to save lives. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, 2.5 million American troops have been deployed total in Operations Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, and New Dawn. And out of those 2.5 million, 5,364 died in action. So I read all these numbers to you because I wanted you to understand what this day really means. And it's so important that we honor those who have served in the military, because without them, we wouldn't have the freedoms we do today. And again, the staggering total is nearly 1.2 million soldiers have died for our country. And by the way, I got my numbers from military.com. So that's where I, I got all the numbers from. And thank them for writing that article. And to all the men and women who have served or are serving in the U.S. Armed Forces, thank you so much for your service. And as I started this with that very famous expression, all gave some, but some gave all. And that is the truth. Some gave their life for you and the freedoms in our country. And as the scripture says in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that is exactly what these soldiers did for us. And it's important that we remember that on this Memorial Day 2023. You know, one of the things I love to do at the end of every podcast is end on a positive note. And a couple of times I've read Medal of Honor citations. I want to put this out to you. If you have a particular experience that you've had or someone in your family or a friend has had and served in the military and either gave all or gave some and you want to share it, feel free to write me and I will read it in a future podcast. My email, drew at thewatchdogsbark.com. Now... I want to tell you a little bit about a man named Bob. <laughs> My dad, his real name was Robert, but he went by Bob. Everybody knew him as Bob. And all my father wanted to do his entire life was fly. From a very young age, he would spend all day at airports 
at the uh, um, Salt Lake International Airport here in Utah. And his stories are amazing. Uh, out of his own diary I've been reading recently, my mother sent me some imp- interesting things. When he was young, he would go out to the airport and spend all day there and just beg for rides to go up and ride. And he would take his lunch out there and sometimes sit in airplanes that weren't locked. That's how safe and, and, and amazing things were back then. People left their planes out on the tarmac, tied down but unlocked. So a uh, adventurous young boy by the name of Robert or Bob uh, went and sat in these airplanes and ate his lunch. In his diary, he recalls the moment he probably fell in love with flying. It was not long after World War II had ended, and there was a local family who had one of their sons was a Navy pilot, and he flew a low pass over my father's grandparents' home, and my dad says, I shall never forget my excitement of seeing and hearing that single-engine dive bomber roar past our house. I think my love for flying started at that moment. When dad was about 12, his uncle had a single-engine air coupe, and he took dad up for a ride in it. My dad said he put his arms under the seatbelt the entire way because he was scared because air coupes are open-air airplanes. So (laughs) that's a fun story. Then when he moved... Uh, He discovered that by riding public bus and transferring downtown, he could go all the way to the airport. And almost every Saturday, he would spend at the airport. And he says it's not like today with the tight security. He could walk anywhere and sit in almost any airplane that was parked and left empty. He can still remember the sights, smells, and excitement. I would spend my days looking for adventure and seeing if I could find someone who would take me up for a ride in their airplane. And he'd crawl into almost any airplane that was left unlocked to spend hours feeling the controls and studying every instrument. My lunch was always the same. I would buy a hamburger and fries from the terminal cafe and then go buy a grape knee-high from the soda pop machine at, at the flying service. Then search for an airplane to sit in the pilot's seat while I enjoyed my favorite lunch. This was surely heaven to a 12-year-old airport bum. Then one day he met a woman that worked for the FAA. She was a secretary for the FAA and asked why he wasn't flying, taking flying lessons. And he'd never dreamed he could start flying so young. So at age 13, like I said, he got a paper route and was able to afford two 30-minute flying lessons per month. And he started flying in the Cessna 140 tail dragger. And our family had a 180 tail dragger, so we flew a lot. And uh, I was very fortunate to live a lot of the time in the sky with my father. Then to give you an idea how much my father really loved flying, when he turned 16, my grandfather or step-grandfather, my father's uh, stepfather, asked him if he wanted to go to the DMV and get his driver's license or go to the airport and solo for the first time. And of course, my dad chose to solo. So my dad flew an airplane before he drove a car. That's how much he loved flying. He recalls in that day when he was at the airport at 16 years old to solo for the first time, he said that he taxied out for takeoff. Following the run-up of the engine, his legs started shaking so badly, he said, 
I had to sit for about 10 minutes trying to decide if this was such a good idea. After mustering up my courage, I called the tower and told them I was ready. The Cessna 140 lifted off earlier than normal because of less weight without the instructor, and his first landing floated farther down the runway because of the less weight. But that was the day that changed his life, he said, because I was hooked on flying forever. One of my father's favorite quotes, and it's actually inscribed on his gravestone, it's by Leonardo da Vinci, says, When once you have tasted flight, you will forever walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward. For there you have been, and there you will always long to return. I personally have so many wonderful memories of flying with my father. Of course, like I said, our family uh, co-owned a Cessna 180 tail dragger that we shared with a couple of other families. And when it was our turn or we were able to get the airplane, we would go up. And I remember our family watching fireworks from an airplane. The city would give you a flight pattern of where, where it was safe to fly around where the fireworks were being launched from different parks around the city. And that is the most spectacular thing you've ever seen. You think fireworks are great from the ground? You ought to watch them explode right in front of you while you're up at that same altitude. It's pretty spectacular. And then you, you know Leonardo da Vinci's quote about once your eyes, or once you've tasted flight, you will forever walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward. Well, every single one of our family videos has a moment where the videographer, <clears throat> my father, uh, the, the, the camera lens turns skyward and follows a plane over <laughs> that flies over us. It didn't matter if we were in Hawaii or in the Virgin Islands or in Scandinavian countries or up in Canada. It doesn't matter where we were at. Literally, I think every single one of our family videos has an airplane flying through the middle of it because my dad, he so loved airplanes and flying so much, he'd, we'd be filming the family doing something and all of a sudden he'd hear the plane and all of a sudden the lens would go skyward and find that plane and follow it all the way across the sky. And then, of course, the lens would come back to the family and we're still continuing the activity we were doing while dad took a little airplane intermission. That was one of the most endearing things about my father is, is when he would videotape us doing all kinds of things all over the world and a plane would fly over and we would have that plane in our family videos. I mentioned that my father never flew for the airlines. It's true. He had uh, too bad of correction for vision. So he had to take the long way around. He had to earn his different certifications that pilots have to get to graduate up to carry passengers, carry cargo, all that. You've got the private pilot, and then you've got turboprop, and then you've got the transport, and then you've got commercial, and you know beyond that. So when my father retired in 1999, I think it was, he, the, there was a mandatory retirement at 60 years old, and he had logged over 25,000 flying hours. So I figured he'd, he spent six years of his life in the air. He flew for the UN out of Luxembourg into the Congo and the Middle East. Yeah, after 9-11, he worked with Homeland Security and training TSA agents with the new safety protocols. 
He worked as a safety check airman when he could no longer fly himself uh, after he lost his medical. Incidentally, when my father was no longer allowed to be a pilot uh, at 60 and had to retire, he had a heart attack. Uh, that shows you how much flying meant to him. And sadly, after he retired completely and wasn't able to fly anymore at all at, in 2016, he passed away two years later. So airplanes have always been a big part of our family. And fortunately, because my father worked for the airlines, uh, Frontier Airlines, by the way, back when Frontier was a good airline, uh, up until 1986, I think they went bankrupt and, and were bought by partially People's Express and then United tried to bid on them and then they ended up folding into Continental. And the sad thing is when they were bought by Continental, the seniority put all of these veteran Frontier pilots, including my father, who had been flying for Frontier for 23 years and was almost one of their senior pilots, their pay scale and seniority went down below new hires in Continental. So that was a big hit to our family when that happened. And flying was so much different back then. Back when we flew as a family all over the world and, you know, on Frontier Airlines to different locations, there were real meals served with silverware and glasses to drink your drinks from. And cockpit was usually open in these airplanes, whether it was a DC-3 or a Convair 580 or uh, even DC-9. Is that what it was? No, MD-80 and the 737 later on. You know, it was a different time. There was none of this crazy safety measures that are going on now that I think a lot are not necessary. When I was young, we used to be able to meet our friends or family or my dad coming off a flight at the top of a jetway and wave to them, you know, as the plane was uh, taxiing in to the gate. You could wave at the passengers through their window, you know, if they were sitting on that side as the plane came by the terminal. And it's just, I, I'm so sad at what airplane travel has become. And like I said, back when Frontier Airlines was a great airline, not the really horrible, stripped down, dirt cheap airline it is now. And I know some, some former people that worked for Frontier uh, created this new Frontier, but I, it's one of my least favorite airlines to fly because it's just so cheap and they charge you for every new addition. Uh, or upgrade you want, whether you want more legroom or different things that, that are, would normally have been free in flying in the good old days of flying, are now charged nickel and dime for everything. And it's just sad to me. And then all the time we spend in security, oh my gads, it takes forever to go through security. And because one idiot tried to bring a shoe bomb on a plane, now we all have to remove our shoes for every flight and belts and anything metal. And it's just, it's humiliating to fly now. It's no longer fun. It used to be fun. We used to dress up to go flying because it was a big event, you know. And also they used to have smoking sections in an airplane, which never made sense to me. Even as a child, I was like, uh, we can still smell the smoke up here in the non-smoking section. So. 
That was a funny thing about flying in the past. But some of my father's fondest stories that he shared when he flew, when he was flying for an airline out of Luxembourg into the Congo, uh, one time he and his co-pilot took off and were ahead of schedule when they left their takeoff or, or takeoff location. And it was really hot and they didn't have air conditioning in the planes back then. So they were both sweating and they saw this really beautiful lake with a little road land or next to it. So they landed, I believe it was a DC-3. It might have been a slick uh, or, or some kind of air, airplane. But when they landed and they got out of the plane and swam in this lake and cooled off and had oh, such a wonderful time and they got dressed and got back in the plane and took off. And when they landed at their destination, they were about 20 minutes late. And the FBO operator, which is fixed based operation or the, the fixed uh, base that's in the airport, uh, they, they asked him, well, why you started off early and now you're late? What happened? And they told him, oh, we found this great lake. We, we stopped and got, you know, a, a cool dip. So we cooled off a little bit. And the guy turned to him and said, was this the lake between this and this uh, outside of a list? Oh, um, wow, you're lucky it was really hot because there were probably about 40,000 alligators on the bottom of that lake looking up at you while you were swimming. And my dad said at that time, his skin started to crawl thinking how lucky he was that he wasn't eaten by alligators that were probably staying cool rather than going to the surface and getting lunch. <laughs> then there was another time when my father, I think it was New Mexico, he was taking off out of an airport in New Mexico in a DC-3, and there was a snake, a rattlesnake, that was snapping at tires as they were taking off. And so my father was determined to hit this snake with the plane's tires. So he ran up the engines and took off and and just missed the snake, and the snake struck at at the tire as he took off, or as as he was uh, ramping up, and then he throttled back, didn't take off, taxied back around, <laughs> and take took a second run at it. Same thing happened. The snake struck, and and so he uh, throttled back the engines and turned back around, taxied around to the uh, end of the runway again, and this time the flight attendants or the stewardesses, as they were called at that time came up and said, um, the passengers are wondering what's going on. Is there something wrong? And my dad says, we're trying to hit this snake. Okay, this will be the last time, whether we get it or not. And so my dad throttled up the engines and had his head out the window and lining up that tire. And he hit that snake the third time and then took off. And uh, when he got to his uh, end destination, one of the mechanics was a really good friend of my father's. And he painted a snake on the side of that DC-3 with a one next to it. So <laughs> I thought that was so awesome when he shared that story. That's just something amazing about my father. Another really neat fact about my father and my parents is my parents met on a DC-3. My father was the first officer and my mother was the stewardess on an airline. And, and my dad fell head over heels for her in an instant. And as a matter of fact, I think there's, he shares a story. Let me see if I can find it in the diary. Yeah, here it is. My father and his crew were flying from Rapid City, South Dakota to Bismarck, North Dakota, and then on to Minot, uh, North Dakota. And 
the crew spent that you know night at, at dinner together and then the next morning they had an early departure and my mom her name was sue uh is sitting was sitting on a suitcase in the back area behind a ticket counter and my dad says as i saw her sitting there without any previous thought or discussion i walked up and gave her a kiss on the lips <laughs> she was as surprised as i was but she didn't push me away or slap me so i guess she thought it was okay And my dad says, there are some who say that love at first sight is just a dream, but I'm here to testify that it was true in my case. Six days after this, my dad asked my mom to marry him. They went to uh, Central City and saw the opera Don Giovanni, which my dad spells incorrectly, (laughs) and asked if she would marry me. And My dad says she too knew that we were meant for each other, but she wanted to think about it. It was the next night or several, seven days after we had met that she accepted my proposal and we were married. So basically, my mom told him no (laughs) on day six, but then came back the next day and said yes. So, uh, and my parents have been married for 54 years and they raised us children in such a way that we would have tolerance and uh, an appreciation for different cultures. I was extremely blessed in my life because about once a month, we would have a family lesson of learning the language, the culture, the food, the art, the architecture, the history of a country. And then we would fly there and spend two weeks in that country during the summer. So I was very fortunate to spend summers, you know, two weeks, uh, almost every summer in a different country. And flying all over the world gave me a love and appreciation for all these different cultures and celebrate differences rather than shun them. Another really cool thing that I got to do that many people do not get to do is frequently my father would be called to go do what's called a ferry flight. And that's not the ones with the wings, you know, of like Tinkerbell. <laughs> that means like you're ferrying a boat back and forth. But basically, it means you go to another city, pick up a plane and bring it back to the city you're in so they can use that plane the next day for flights. So one time, my father took me with him and we flew over to Denver and picked up a plane and flew it back to Salt Lake. And it was a Convair 580. And I had been flying many times with dad, so I knew what all the instruments were. So my dad pointed out, okay, here's the artificial horizon, here's the altimeter, and uh, here's the, you know, the controls, and there's the rudders and everything. And, uh, you know, you fly the plane for a while. And he sat back, and I was flying a Convair 580 by myself. I don't remember how old I was, 16, 17, something like that. But for, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 minutes, it seemed like forever. Uh, because it was just, I was, uh, I, I just looked at the instruments and looked out and made sure we weren't going to run into a mountain, you know, cause we flew, you have to fly over the mountains to go that route. And that was a spectacular memory. And I will never forget that. I still have a model of the Convair 580 as my, a memento I kept from my father, a really nice mo- uh, model of the Convair 580. And then another time we were taxiing in a, um, 737. And I didn't know this. I was too young to know, 
but you don't steer an airplane when it's taxiing on the ground with the steering wheel. And you certainly don't push the brakes by, you know. So my father convinced me that I was steering this 737 and he was really doing it with his feet in the rudders uh, in the other seat. But boy, I'm telling you, when I was a little kid, I thought I drove a 737 on an airport. Thank you very much. Come to find out later that I really wasn't, that he was controlling everything. And uh, even when he told me to pull back on that stick is the brake, you know, that was the brake. He said, yeah, turn right, turn left. Okay, good, good. Now pull hard back on the stick. That's the brake. And I pulled hard back on the stick and the plane stopped. And I was so proud of myself. I'm like, yep, I can drive a 737. Thank you very much. But stuff like that. Oh my gosh, my father just gave me so many amazing memories. So I wanted to just share that with you guys uh, in this podcast. I definitely understand, you know, he never served for it in the military. I know he could have, I would have, if I could have, I had medical uh, conditions that I had to deal with when I was younger. So I couldn't serve in the military either. And I was 17 when Top Gun came out. I told you that Navy recruiter guys would call me all the time. How would you like to be a Top Gun pilot? And I was like, yes, I do. And then I'd stop them short saying, ah, sorry, I can't. But my father gave me a love for flying. And actually now I can hear a plane go over and my eyes go skyward and follow the plane across the sky. I can tell you what kind of plane it is. And I can guarantee you if I was filming something and I heard that plane, that camera lens would turn skyward to follow that plane. And it's all because of my father. And one of the biggest events we would do pretty often was go to the Reno National Championship Air Races and see incredible flying out there. Different classifications of airplanes fly. And, and sadly, this, is, this year is going to be the last year they're going to be at Stead Airport uh, in Reno, Nevada, because there's just too much uh, real estate development going on out there that it's not safe to fly uh, in the pattern of the air race. See, the, the air race is flown counterclockwise around pylons set on a course uh, in this big field. There's the smaller course for the single engine uh, home builds and by wings. There's the little bigger course, I think it's six miles, for the AT6 SNJs, which are World War II trainers. And then they have the big course, which is I think about nine miles for the unlimited, the jet class, and the super sport, uh, which fly much faster. And the different classifications of airplanes, if you get a chance, and if by chance the Reno or the air race organization finds another location, definitely go and participate in this event. It's a whole week of heat races up leading up to the gold race on Sunday. And they have all these different classifications. Like I mentioned, the unlimited class is World War II fighters, F-8F Bearcats, F-4U Corsairs, uh, Hawker Sea Furies, P-51 Mustangs, all highly modified. Unlimited means you can do anything to them, and they do. Like they have a rare bear, uh, an F-8F Bearcat, who's cut two feet off of each wing and welded the flaps shut. So the plane has to land extremely fast. It can't slow down to land. And they modify the cockpits and they uh, supercharge the engines and they put nitrous oxide in the engines to make them faster. 
And you've got single-engine airplanes, P-51 Mustangs and, and uh, uh, F-8F Bearcats that are doing over 500 miles an hour, 40 to 100 feet off the ground, racing wingtip to wingtip. It's absolutely fantastic. And then they have air show, you know, aerobatics. You've got like Bob Hoover was one of the most famous names. This is a man who was made a test pilot for the military at 19 years old. That's how good a pilot he was. And he was famous for flying with a Panama hat on rather than, you know, the (laughs) helmet and goggles. And you've got, you know, some of the biggest aerobatic, Patty Wagstaff, um, Sean B. Tucker, uh, all these wonderful aerobatic pilots that I've met and spent time talking to. And it's just, I miss that community so much. And it's because my father's not around anymore. Uh, I still have that love for air shows, and you don't have to talk to me twice and ask me twice if I want to go to an air show. I will always want to go to an air show. Uh, It's just something that is endearing to me and brings back so many wonderful memories of my father. All right, I know I rambled on and on about this, but I, I just wanted you guys to understand, not only is today Memorial Day a very special day for our country in honoring those soldiers who gave their lives in the defense of our country. But I just wanted you to get to know a little bit about me and my father and how much love and respect I have for him uh, and his love for flying. It's because of my father I love airplanes so much and flying so much. And it's also because of my father I love astronomy. And I told you that one statistic about the Red Supergiant Beetlejuice. I have all kinds of other information about astronomy. Uh, When I was 12 years old, I took a college-level astronomy course with my father, and we sat and studied astronomy together. And that's another thing that really, I feel, brings me closer to my father is when I look through the telescope that he left me and uh, study all about the stars and things that go on in our universe. And I'm particularly very excited about these new James Webb telescope and all that it is uncovering about the history of our universe. All right. I hope I didn't bore you too much because that was kind of my own thing. I wanted to do that for my own benefit, just to remember my father, because my mother sent me this thing uh, about my father. Uh, We put these uh, QR tags on my dad's gravestone. So hopefully people will get their phones out and click on that and read the history about my father. And I've just shared a couple of stories. You'll probably hear more in future podcasts, but I just wanted to give you a couple of fun stories and uh, great memories I have of him. All right. Now let's talk about Anna Mae Bullock. Do you know who she is? That is Tina Turner. That was her name when she was born, Anna Mae Bullock. It was actually Ike Turner, her partner during the 60s and 70s, that gave her the nickname Tina because he thought it sounded a lot like Xena, warrior princess. So Tina Turner. I absolutely love this woman. I am so blown away by her talent. I've always loved really nice, naturally raspy, high tenor or soprano voices. It's just something I've always really enjoyed. And she was one of the best. And she passed away recently at the age of 83 in her home in Switzerland. The cause of her death wasn't reported really, but she's been known recently to have a lot of health issues, uh, including she had a stroke and she's been dealing with cancer and kidney failure. So 
Uh, she passed away peacefully in Switzerland last week. She was born in 1939. And as I said, she and Ike, her husband, formed what was called the Ike and Tina Turner Review. And they had a lot of big hits in the 60s and 70s. Hits like River Deep, Mountain High, uh, I've Been Loving You Too Long, Proud Mary, when she did her cover of that, and then uh, Shame, Shame, Shame. So they did like 22 albums together in the 60s and 70s. Then it came out that Ike was extremely abusive, and Tina left him. To show you what kind of domineering person Ike really was, because Ike gave Tina Turner her nickname, he copyrighted it. So he owned the name. So in the future, when Tina wanted to make records, she had to consider that fact as well, that Ike Turner would probably get some money because of owning her name. And just tragic uh, how horrible he was abusive to her and treated her. And after she finally got rid of him, they were, I think it was at the end of the 70s, coming up on the early 80s. And Mark Garagos talks about this. He was, you know, the lawyer for O.J. Simpson, one of the lawyers for O.J. Simpson, but he was also a music promoter back when Ike and Tina Turner were uh, a big thing. And they tried to sell a concert with Tina Turner just by herself, a uh, concert tour, and they just weren't able to get the ticket. She, her her uh, fame had run out, so to speak. And, and Mark Garagos talks about her being so gracious when they called her and said, um, we've only sold like 18 tickets uh, to your tour and we're just, we just don't think we're going to be able to have the tour. And she just graciously said, no problem. She completely understands. And everybody thought that was the end for Tina Turner. Boy, were they wrong. <laughs> because in 1984, she came out with Private Dancer. And that album had some of her biggest songs on it. Songs like Private Dancer, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It, uh, We Don't Need Another Hero, and of course, what describes Tina, I believe, is simply the best. Then, who can forget her in a couple of movies? She found uh, a great success in Hollywood when she was not making records. In the 70s, she was in Tommy, The Who's Tommy, and she was also in Last Action Hero. I know that was late. Yeah. Before that, she was, of course, in my favorite role that she's ever been in is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. That, she was fantastic in that. And then Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, uh, you know, she's just, she was a force. You, you, you can't describe her in just a regular terms. She wasn't. She lived life to the fullest and was what rarely can be assigned to a person is she was truly an icon. She broke barriers for women. She broke barriers for uh, people of color. She broke barriers for black women. You know, there's just, she broke so many barriers and blazed the path for so many people. So it was a big loss when I found out that Tina Turner had passed away last week. And so rest in peace, Tina Turner, and you were simply the best. 
All right, and as I always like to do, I want to end on a positive note. My note for this podcast is this. Don't judge a book by its cover, and don't take things personally. The reason why I say this is going back to my father. If someone judged my father by the cover, meaning they just looked at his ancestry sheet saying he was born in one town, died in another town, which are right next to each other here in Utah, they would conclude that, boy, he didn't get out much, and he probably is, you know, a, a, a country hick that, uh, you know, just stayed home and never did anything and never went anywhere. And they wouldn't know all of these wonderful stories and how many places around the world my father has lived and worked and flown, and how many places my father and mother have been and our family has been. So they wouldn't know anything like that if you judge a book by its cover. So try not to judge a book by its cover. The second part is don't take things personally. 99.9% of the time when someone is screaming and yelling at you, they're projecting what they're feeling on the inside. And it's especially when dealing with a company, it's never personal. You know, I've worked in customer service in many companies and, uh, I can tell you that I've been balled out more than my share of times. Uh, in fact, there was one time I was working at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, and uh, I was working in their patrons' uh, services, and one lady just called and screamed and yelled at me and used profane language to where I thought she was married to a sailor. And I stopped and just realized she was not in a good place. And so I, I, after she was done and, and settled down, I said, it sounds like you're having a really bad day. What's going on? And she just broke down and told me that she had just lost her dog uh, that had been her companion forever. And she was just distraught over that. And then she found out that aisle tickets she's had, season tickets, uh, were no longer available. And she wasn't able to access her patron lounge benefits and all these things. And I said, well, hold on. What happened to your, your tickets? And she says, oh, I don't know. I, all of a sudden, I've been moved in. I said, well, give me a second. Will you, can I put you on hold for a second? And I went and talked and found out that a mistake was made in the ticketing department. And uh, on the ticketing software, it made a mistake. And so I contacted the ticketing department. They contacted the customers that had gotten those seats. They agreed to move over. And uh, then I found out that her credit card had expired without her knowing. And that's why her patron's lounge benefits expired. So I, I got back on the phone with her and I said, hey, here's what I discovered. I said, number one, the t ticketing software made a mistake. And uh, I, we've talked to the customers and they have agreed to move over so you can have your aisle seat back for the five show packet that you want for this season. And I said, in your patron's lounge, the reason why is we, I don't know if we have an old credit card or... The credit card that we have is expired, and I'm sorry, someone should have called you, uh, but they didn't. Do you by chance have a new credit card? And she goes, oh, yeah, let me go grab that. And so she grabbed it and gave me the credit card number, and I put it in, and she had all her benefits again, and she thanked me and said, thank you so much. I really didn't mean what I said to you. And I said, oh, I know. I said, it's never personal. It never is. Uh, when someone is screaming and yelling at you, they're projecting what they're feeling on the inside. So... Often, a word of compassion will break that right up and will cause them to really realize, wow, I'm really acting irrational. 
uh, and this person doesn't deserve it. And a lot of times you'll get people be very contrite and apologetic. And, you know, that's really what I want people to understand is don't judge a book by its cover. And when someone's screaming and yelling at you for any reason, it's usually not personal. So don't take it personally. And I promise you, if you don't take a lot of things personally and let things go like the water off a duck's behind, (laughs) that you'll have a much more fulfilling life without things that are making you live in constant anxiety and anger and frustration. Just let it go, as Elsa says from Frozen. (laughs) And I know... um, my friends made fun of me the last time I sang Let It Go, Let It Go, because I did it kind of nasally. Just think about that. Let things go. Don't take things personally. And don't judge books by their cover. All right. And with that, thank you so much for listening. If you haven't listened to all my podcasts, and if by chance listening to this one has said, you know, this guy kind of sounds pretty cool, and I want to find out more of what his beliefs are, feel free to go Listen to all of my podcasts. Start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. (laughs) I know, I'd said it again. But you'll learn a lot about me because I have gone through a journey in making these podcasts. And some of my beliefs have even changed. You know, that's really what I think is important for all of us to be open-minded, to not consider ourselves so set in our ways that we can't learn new things and not be so stringent in our political party beliefs, especially in ideologies, that we're not even willing to listen to what the other side feels or believes. So I think that's very important. So until next time, create an amazing day and be sure and relay the bark.